0: Welcome to the World Exposé podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. We're joined by Professor Alana O'Malley, Chair of the United Nations Studies in Peace and Justice at Leiden University in Holland. She is the author of Diplomacy of Decolonization, America, Britain, and the United Nations during the Congo Crisis, 1960 to 1964. Professor Mali is going to speak with us about the Congo Crisis, which saw the interaction of decolonization with the Cold War. She will be discussing the role played by the UN amid conflicting interests of UN members and how the UN has evolved since. Professor O'Malley, thanks so much for coming onto to the podcast.
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
0: start off, could you talk to us about Congo gaining independence from Belgium in 1960 and what led to the Congo crisis just one month after independence?
1: Sure. So the Congo, as many people will know, was a colony of Belgium for the first half of the 20th century. And it was also the private estate of the Belgian king, King Leopold. And because of this colonial legacy, which was quite specific, even in terms of European colonialism, the Congo really emerged on the kind of cusp of independence with a series of structural inequalities, basically no preparation for self-governance. For example, despite having a highly educated population for a colonial territory because of the widespread institutionalization of religious church teaching facilities across the country. There was very few formally educated Congolese, so in fact less than 20 who had been to university. So this was really because of the way that the Belgians institutionalized their authority, which meant that there was no career progression for anybody above a certain level. So that really left the Congo in this very difficult situation in terms of civil infrastructure and the capacity for self-governance, right? So, you know, basically things like staffing, administrative facilities, lawyers, courts, doctors, those essential personnel of a state. Then on top of that, the Congo is an enormous territory. So it's currently and it was then of course the size of Western Europe. So you have really at that moment in June or even before that in 1960, you have over 200 languages that are spoken. You have very distinct provincial identities, very distinct ethnic and religious identities among them. And so it's not really a state in the classic sense. It's really just a space on the map. The third element that really made it, you know, kind of signaled that it would have enormous difficulties. Um, And this is one of the kind of fascinating elements of the Congo, is that it's an extremely rich country in terms of natural resources. And that we know because there's still an ongoing conflict over natural resources in the eastern part of the country. And this is really kind of a problem for the Congo because these natural resources are basically owned by private companies, which are European. So very little of the revenue that's generated from natural resources in 1960 goes back to the Congolese state. And on top of that, these natural resources are a cause for conflict around who controls them. And when you see how the crisis progresses, you see that political economy plays quite an important role. And this really kind of points to these deeper problems with the establishment of capitalism in Africa and capitalist systems during that decolonization process. So in many ways, it has these um, kind of multitude of problems, which means that the international community knows something is going to happen. And they know this because um, people like Roger Casement, who I think a lot of people in Ireland will be familiar with, had already written a report about the ills of Belgian colonialism and the slavery and the violence and depravity of Belgian colonial regime in the 1920s and 30s. So it was the first space on the map where this whole idea of humanitarian interventions really became a buzzword, even in the late 19th century. And then on top of that, if you want to add another kind of element of conflict indicators, the United Nations knew that the independence of the Congo would really shake up the whole independence process across the continent. And they had already dispatched advisors to the Congolese to try to help them towards a safe and stable independence regime before independence was formally declared so this was you know it was a crisis that was expected
0: so just after independence in the background belgium was sort of trying to convince the minister in the province of kathanga which was believed to hold over two-thirds of the country's natural resources to secede from congo fearing that a sort of nationalist movement would deprive belgium and the Western world out of these natural resources. So how did Belgium go about that?
1: Well, Belgium went about the whole independence process in a very strange way. So they told the Congolese essentially in January 1960, yeah, actually, it's fine. You can be independent in six months. So this was also a surprise for Congolese political leaders because they didn't expect it to be so easy. But then they said, well, you can be independent, but yeah, we'll just continue to manage the economy for you and foreign relations. Also, by the way, here's an enormous amount of debt that the Congo state has produced. So the Congo was broke from the moment it became independent. Because of that, the country immediately had a crisis and that increased their focus on trying to control the flow of these natural minerals. So Belgium uh, installed a puppet regime in Katanga, which is the southeastern province of the Congo, under a guy called Misha Chombe. Misha Jombe had some claims to represent the Kentangan people and the the specific um, ethnic tribes that were dominant in the region. But he was largely considered to be a puppet for Western influence. And if you look at the people who he was surrounded by, they were all Belgian imperialists, former colonial authority figures, Belgian bankers and former diplomats who were advising him on how to, you know, make Katanga into an independent state. And that was devastating because, as you mentioned, two-thirds of the Congolese economy relied on processing the materials for Katanga. And it could have just been an internal story, right, about one area of the country being under the command of the former colonial authorities. But the reality was that actually... Katanga also was an important source of global raw materials. And that made this secession different to other disputes about border territories. So, for instance, the uranium for the American atomic bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima came from Katanga. And the country produced most of the world's industrial diamonds at that point, a high percentage of the world's gold, but also large percentages of profit for European investment corporations who were involved in the mining in the region. So Katanga really had a significant contribution to the global economy and to global natural
0: resources and that's what made it a particularly controversial secession. And was the United States also behind the seceding of Katanga to become an independent state or?
1: That's never really been shown to be the case. I mean, there were indications that, of course, the British and the Americans certainly, if not supported the secession, did nothing to stop it because it was beneficial for them. right? And you have to also remember that not only did the the governments of Belgium, Britain and the United States have investments in these corporations, but individual shareholders were like the head of the Bank of England. Had a huge amount of shares in Katanga, and the foreign secretary had a huge amount of shares in
0: Katanga Corporation. So,
1: this was a very complex financial network.
0: How does the UN get involved then?
1: So, Patrice Lumumba becomes the Prime Minister of the Congo on the first Prime Minister on the 30th of June 1960. And Patrice Lumumba is an extremely charismatic guy, he's a former postal clerk who actually himself was jailed for corruption early on in his postal career. And after that, he abandons his postal ambitions and he becomes a very, very popular, charismatic leader. And he's young, he's very vigorous. He does something that nobody thinks is possible because he manages to unite the Congolese people around this idea that they are one nation, that they have something in common, even though they they oftentimes they don't understand each other's languages or they don't have huge amounts of connections between the provinces because there's very little infrastructure so he's very popular and charismatic and he appeals to the united nations because he sees the un as the kind of the guardian of versioning self-determination and new nations and you also have to remember that in 1960 the un was a lot more popular than it is now so for example News correspondents, radio and paper journalists from across Africa and Asia and South America had regular columns in national newspapers and on the radio about what was happening at the UN every day. So it was something that was much, much, much more present in ordinary people's discourses and in their their media than it is now. And that was because it was really at this moment of great change. So 16 new members joined the General Assembly in 1960. And it was called even the Year of Africa because so many countries became independent and became UN members. And that changed the balance of power inside the UN. So it was no longer Western dominated in the General Assembly. It was actually now the case that two thirds of the members came from the Global South. And that meant that they could shape the agenda. And that agenda was all about decolonization.
0: How did the UN's role ultimately play out in the Congo? So the Secretary General of the UN at the time, Dag Hammarskjöld, fostered a vision of the UN as an activist and interventionist organisation, which sought to prevent the spread of the Cold War to the newly independent African and Asian nations. Did the UN fail in this vision with the Congo crisis?
1: This is like another element that makes the Congo a special story. Partially it's this colonial legacy, partially it's this global economy element and partially it's the UN part and Dag Hammarskjöld was I would say the most visionary UN Secretary General that the UN has ever had because he really believed that the organization should actively protect newly independent nations and small nations. He thought that it should not just be in the service of the United States or the Western powers. And that really drew him um, into great popularity amongst those countries, including with the Congo and with Patrice Lumumba, at least initially. And it drew him into controversy with the West, because this was a Secretary General who wanted to move the UN towards different purposes than had been initially intended. So this really leads Hammershould to create a series of initiatives within the UN around peacekeeping. Now, peacekeeping, of course... This was not the first peacekeeping mission that was earlier around Suez. But this was the first time that a peacekeeping mission had been sent in to defend the sovereignty of another country. And the peacekeepers found themselves in very unprecedented territory because the sovereignty of the Congo was clear on paper. But in reality, it was contested internally because it was a very unstable political system. So they found themselves in very difficult scenarios where it wasn't clear where their authority came from because a lot of the peacekeepers were white. Some of them came from Sweden and from Ireland because Hammershall wanted neutral nations to contribute troops. They were sometimes mistaken for being Belgian. So that really created hostility with local people. The peacekeepers, for the first time ever in 1961, were mandated to use force in self-defense, meaning that they could shoot back when they were fired upon. And that, again, complicated peacekeeping because that's essentially not what has been envisaged by the Charter. So Hammershaw, because he was quite visionary, created very original mandates with the Security Council for the peacekeeping mission. And to a large extent, this meant that the mission was quite strong in certain aspects in terms of it, it was really a military peacekeeping operation that was designed to restore sovereignty and that did eventually end the secession of Katanga in 1962. But at the same time, of course, this is not what peacekeeping was really supposed to do because in that sense, the peacekeepers acted as agents of the Congolese state. And so that drew them into a lot of controversy inside the Congo where they were quite unpopular but then also by other nations looking at these peacekeepers performing on behalf of the Congolese state and being quite worried that this was something that could happen elsewhere. So the peacekeeping mission has a very mixed legacy. The other element that made it such a mixed legacy was that a lot of peacekeepers got killed in the Congo and it cost a fortune. So it bankrupted the United Nations. And I think the last bonds paid to cover the debt of that peacekeeping mission were paid in the late 1980s. This was something that cost a hell of a lot of money, and it really demonstrated to a lot of other UN members the perils and the problems of peacekeeping missions that are large and very problematic politically and militarily. In
0: 1963, eventually, Katanga is unified with the rest of Congo. Is Lumumba still around now? Where
1: Lumumba um, falls out with Dag Hammarskjöld in the summer of 1960, and there's an internal coup that's led against him in September 1960. So he spends a couple of months under house arrest, and then he he makes a break for it uh, in November 1960. He he makes a break to move from the capital to his own city of Kisangani, where his home base is and on the way of course he gets captured by his enemies and he is assassinated in January 1961 now it has been proven pretty well that the Belgian secret service working with the Katangan authorities assassinated Lumumba and did so deliberately because they were afraid that if he came back to power that that would be the end of the Katangan secession so Lumumba is out of the picture actually within 6 months but because he's assassinated in this very public way and everybody knows that, you know, they, they kind of know what they don't know. This hasn't only been proven in recent years to be absolutely fact, but they know that the Belgians, helped by the Americans and the British, have assassinated Lumumba. And then he becomes this enormous martyr, right? So even now he's a symbol of the struggle against imperialism and colonialism and there are statues of him everywhere, including in Kisangani, of course. So his shadow kind of looms large over the rest of the Congo crisis. There isn't really another leader that emerges that matches his stature and popularity. But for the Congolese and for other African nations and citizens, it demonstrates how far the West is going to go to protect their interests in Africa. They're going to go as far as assassinating your politicians. And this is very alarming.
0: And that was where the Cold War interactions came into play as Lumumba was pro Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, so Lumumba wasn't really pro-Soviet Union. He was just pro-Congo, and what that led him to do was to try to play both sides off each other. So he goes to the United States initially in the summer of 1960, and he goes on this publicity campaign. He's talking about you know building relationships with the Americans, and he meets with many prominent American leaders. And they encounter him as someone who's very energetic and charismatic. They don't all like him because he's quite divisive, but he wants to generate support in the United States. But then when things go sour, especially in his relationship with Hammersholt in August 1960, he starts making these speeches about uh, vive l'Union Sovietique and uh, vive Khrushchev. And he appeals to the Soviet Union for help to militarily end the secession of Katanga. Now, it hasn't really been shown totally convincingly that the Soviet Union intended to use the Congo as an entry point for the Cold War into Central Africa. I think that they did send him I know that they did send him support. There's a great story about how they sent a suitcase full of dollars as far as Egypt, but then it gets lost in this uh, journey across the Saharan Desert and it never gets to Lumumba or his supporters. This is a little bit later after his days finished. The Soviet Union does try to help them materially, but it certainly hasn't been shown that it was part of some strategy on their part to counter the americans the problem is that for the americans this is already far too much and far too alarming especially considering again their material interests in the congo and they perceive soviet support even where it really wasn't very strong and that's enough to turn them off lumumba immediately there's this great story about the american president eisenhower and he Supposed to have commented that he could think of nothing better than if Lumumba would fall into a river full of crocodiles. This is often taken as an indication that he was also involved in this effort to assassinate Lumumba. Not he himself, of course, but the Americans.
0: In 2002, Belgium officially apologised for Lumumba's assassination.
1: Yeah, so there's a great book from Bruce Kuklick and Emmanuel Gerard called The Killing of Patrice Lumumba. It came out about five years ago. They put all the documentary evidence together and they trace the Belgian involvement. And they tell this very grim story about how one of the Belgian security officials who was there when Lumumba was killed, he has kept one of his teeth in a jar as this kind of souvenir of the assassination. And they were the ones who really were involved in the parliamentary inquiry in 2002. And then Belgium officially admitted their guilt and complicity in that process. We know a little bit less about the ways in which Britain and the United States helped them in that endeavor. But I think that that's something that deserves more research.
0: After the Western allies took down Lumumba, how did they end up backing Mobutu, who became obviously a brutal dictator for over three decades? How couldn't they have found? Somebody who could have led a more democratic nation.
1: I think there's two things that happen that lead them towards Mobutu. Firstly, you know, Mobutu at that point is very young, right? He's actually one of Lumumba's good colleagues. He takes over the running of the armed forces. He's kind of seen as a bright spark and someone who's ambitious and someone who's, who you can work with. He spoke very good French and that was very important for the Americans and the British to communicate with him. So Mamutsu is from the beginning there, right? He doesn't just emerge um, in 1964. But of course, something else that happens along the way in September 1961 is that Dag Hammarskjöld gets killed in a mysterious plane crash in the Congo on his way to negotiate a ceasefire between Katanga and the Congolese state. And this really, if you like, copper fastens the American and British hand in trying to steer the Congo crisis. Because once Hammersholt is dead, he's essentially out of the way, and they can take a stronger role in shaping the mandate for the peacekeepers. And that mandate is really about ending the secession and restoring the territorial sovereignty of the Congo, that it's a stable, Western-facing state. And they spend that time between 1961, 1963, early 64, in building up political contacts and allies within the Congolese government. They always have Mobutu on the side, right? They cultivate that relationship quite assiduously and they really, they like Mobutu and they're kind of willing to work with him. And there aren't really any indications at this stage that it will be such a brutal dictatorship. But then middle of 1964, a third of the Congo is under the control of various rebel groups. So the whole stability of the country falls apart as the peacekeepers withdraw. And there's this very interesting episode that happens in November 1964, where 200 Europeans are taken hostage in Kisangani, And one of them, even though the rebels don't know this, one of them is actually a CIA spy. And he is able to communicate to the Americans what's going on. And the Americans, because they... This is a disaster for them, and they organize a rescue mission for the European hostages. And this is very, very controversial because together with Britain and Belgium, they fly in these Belgian paratroopers, they try to rescue the hostages, a lot of them get killed because the rebels panic. And then there is this whole kind of another demonstration um, to the Congolese and to the other African countries of the extent to which the West will go to mind their interests. But for the Americans, this is an extent to which the disaster of decolonization, right? This is a country that's it's large, it's rich, but it's completely out of control. And so then they turn to Mobutu and say, listen, maybe you could take a stronger role. Now it's not proven, again, you know, in very kind of black and white terms that they assist with the coup, but it's quite obvious from the documentary record that they knew about it, they do help him, and they're delighted, frankly, when he um, organizes this coup in
0: 1965. Did the UN play any role in boarding Mobutu?
1: No, because the UN are kind of quietly trickling out of the Congo between 64 and 65. And it's been such a disaster for them. They're financially broke. Their political prestige has been damaged greatly by the Congo experience. The peacekeeping, there, there is no peacekeeping mission on that scale again until the end of the Cold War, right? So this has been kind of devastating for the whole idea of peacekeeping. So they refuse to get involved in the internal politics of the Congo, and they refuse to get involved in that process, even though the Americans try to encourage them.
0: The main criticism of the UN in the Congo crisis was that they're perceived to be more aligned with the West as opposed to remaining yeah. neutral.
1: Yeah, that's the, the main criticism of the UN. It's just really there to bolster the, the Western position. I don't think that this is a, an accurate reflection. I think that actually in the first two years in particular, the UN is much more interested in making the Congo a good case of decolonization and showing how Helpful, the role of the UN can be in safeguarding sovereignty and in nation building. And to do that, they work very, very closely with the the Congolese, with the other African states who contribute troops to the Congo mission. Harmashold has something called um, the Congo Club, which is an informal meeting of representatives in his office once a week to have dinner. This is the first time that the African group ever meets with the Secretary General when they meet with him on the Congo. And he also creates the Congo Advisory Committee, which is only composed of troop-contributing countries. And that omits Belgium, Britain and the United States from okay. discussions about the mandate. So actually, I think that that side of the UN legacy really hasn't been portrayed accurately by history.
0: Has that legacy left by Habershaw continued until today? or? is there still always competing interests by America and China as the largest contributors
1: Yeah it's a really good question because you know Hammershall is always always invoked as this kind of almost savior of the U.N. the best chance they ever had to to be the best they could be and in in many cases he was an extraordinary leader because he had a very clear vision for what the U.N. should be but also he had the real political will and personal will to Push the UN to be better than it was, to create a secretariat that was very effective and very efficient. And he formed really close relationships with a host of different countries, not just with the West. And you see that he had success in other areas. So today, when we have these discussions about UN reform and America and China, you know, what we don't have is a Secretary General who has the same kind of political clout. I think Antonio Guterres has, you know, some good aspects to his leadership, and I think he's done a good job in some areas. But it's not really comparable to the kind of political leverage that the UN Secretary General could wield if they had that kind of political will behind them, but also personal vision for what the UN could be. And I think that's why we're constantly harking back to hammer because we're, you're yearning for that kind of leadership at the UN.
0: Is the UN still growing in size today in terms of its budget and its world presence?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. In terms of the budget, it's very up and down. So, really, it's a case of when there are good times, the UN does well because member states meet their contributions and they are required under the Charter to make financial contributions to the UN every year, but oftentimes, They don't do that for a variety of different reasons. And on the other hand, when things are not going well, then the UN suffers. And so now what we are in this moment, this kind of corona crisis, has launched a kind of a wider discussion about global governance. So on the one hand, you have a lot of people who are saying, look, you know, the UN, obviously, they didn't tell us this was going to happen. The WHO didn't give us early enough warning. The Security Council can't even get it together to get a resolution out on this. That's not a good sign because it really indicates the, the the distance between America and China and Russia of course on um, these kind of human security elements. But on the other hand, you know, we see we know more about the WHO from the last eight weeks than I think most people ever knew before. So it really demonstrates that these kind of global challenges, like a pandemic, they require global cooperation. There is no way to solve these problems without the UN. And the UN is the only global actor that we have. The thing that annoys me so much about coverage of the UN is that it's always this focus on security council politics. And okay, this is an important organ, but what about the other 190 member states of the General Assembly and all the work that the specialised agencies do? And they do all this work kind of quietly without any publicity. And I think if people knew a little bit more about what the UN does, then we would have a greater resonance of its relevance with global populations and then you just have a greater knowledge of what the UN can do as opposed to what people think it should do and that's that kind of gap between knowledge and relevance that the UN is kind of struggling against when it tries to recreate its image.
0: In a great TED talk you gave you sort of spoken of that and how in our increasingly globalized world where problems that we face are global and scale the UN is more needed than ever and I guess that's really shown now with the COVID-19 epidemic.
1: Right, because we need to have some kind of coordinating body at a global level. And that will inherently always be political. But without it, member states really tend to revert towards nationalistic tendencies. And you see that in the different policies, even within Europe, that countries have adopted towards lockdown measures and then easing the measures, right? The better coordination we have at a global level the better able we are to tackle these challenges. And it goes beyond altruistic idealism because we can't solve COVID prices. We can't solve climate change. We can't solve these issues unless we have that cooperation. So in my view, this is a really important opportunity for a conversation about global governance. But I do think that it's important to think about who we include in that conversation. And I think we really need to move beyond this idea that It's the West versus the rest, or it's America versus China, because these kind of superpower politics will always be with us, but actually they will stand in the way of providing solutions for these global problems.
0: The finger-pointing happening now with America and in Europe also, putting the blame of COVID-19 on China and Chinese censorship, Mm that that division could even increase and have less of this global governance you're talking about.
1: Absolutely, because when this happens, this discussion, it soaks up all the airtime. And it really fortifies this outdated vision of the UN as a talking shop for America versus Russia or America versus China or whoever you like, to diplomats talking to each other. But this is only a tiny part of what the UN does. And actually, way more importantly... You have people sitting in Geneva deciding policies about COVID-19, deciding policies about flu shots, about vaccines. You have UNICEF offices and UNESCO offices and UNHCR offices in the hardest hit areas of the world who actually provide material aid on a daily basis, who implement policies to try to overcome these global challenges. And I think if people knew a little bit more about that element we would be able to get away from this image that the UN is just a diplomatic talking shock of politicians that's very far removed from our lives. Because one thing that the COVID crisis has shown us is that we're inherently reliant on each other. I mean, global supply chains are not just interlinked, they are massively dependent on cooperation between nations, borders remaining open, transport networks remaining functioning. But on an even more basic level, we are reliant on sharing intelligence about how to solve these problems. And unless we continue to do that in a very coordinated way, then I think these global challenges will not just not be solved, but will just become exacerbated. So partially, I think if we had a better knowledge and more realistic image of what the UN is and what it does with its problems and flaws in mind, right, I'm not a UN apologist. I don't think it's a perfect institution. I just think that there's so much we don't know. And I wonder how that has happened since it's 75 years we've had this institution now.
0: So for sure, everybody has to read up on the UN's vision anyway.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I would say to be aware of the fact that the UN is already all around us, right? So every time we recycle a piece of plastic, or you put your paper bin outside, these are ideas about recycling, about renewal and about protection of the environment that the UN has been talking about since the 1970s. But it takes a long time for them to filter down through the national and provincial levels of governance. But that individual choice can also be bottom-up in thinking about how our choices are also impactful in terms of using and actualizing UN policies. I think that connection needs to be clearer. And I think the UN is getting better at having a more human face on these kind of issues as well.
0: Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it. And maybe give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.